Welcome to the war from Boise, Idaho. This is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, send it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Today we're going to present the last of four of the four episodes of Battle Station. We already played the first two. The third episode of Battle Stations talked about the history and development of the naval uh, air uh, arm from 1910 into the 1930s. Today's episode kind of uh, brings that up to the present by looking at those men who served in the Navy's air arm during World War II. Who were these men? What were their values? And what were they all about? That's what this episode seeks to answer and does quite well at. So let's go ahead and take a listen to the episode of Battle Station from August 22, 1943. And the title is The Men of the Navy's Air Arm in World War II. Broadcasting Company's Department of Special Events, cooperating with the United States Navy, presents the last of a series of four programs to tell you of your Navy, its accomplishments, its history, its heroes, and its hopes, under the title, Battle Stations. Tonight, the men of the Navy's air arm in World War II. I wonder if I'll remember what a gal looks like. Gee, all those pictures you had in the wall at quarters ought to have kept your memory refreshed. Yeah, just the same. Them kind of gals might have gone out of date since I had my last leave. These are Navy flying fighters making sounds like normal American young men. Almost an hour ago, they took off from the flight deck of the USS Enterprise. In a few minutes, they will land at a base and a long-delayed, eagerly-awaited leave will begin. This young pilot of Scouting Squadron 6 fastens his eyes on the gray haze at the horizon and listens to the melody of power at his control, to which he adds words, the Navy Flyer's Creed. I'm a United States Navy Flyer. My countrymen built the best airplane in the world and entrusted it to me. They trained me to fly it. I will use it to the absolute limit of my power. My fellow pilots, air crews, and deck crews... My plane and I will do anything necessary to carry out our tremendous responsibilities. I will always remember we are part of an unbeatable combat team, the United States Navy. When the going is fast and rough, I will not falter. I will be uncompromising in every blow I strike. I will be humble in victory. I am a United States Navy flyer. I've dedicated myself to my country with its many millions of all races, colors, and creeds. They and their way of life are worthy of my greatest protective effort. I ask the help of God in making that effort great enough. Hey, my eyes going bad on me? Looks like a lot of smoke over there off the starboard wing, about 20 miles. Yeah, I see. Not so unusual to see smoke over these islands, though. They burn the fields out around harvest time. What kind of fields? They don't burn out oil fields around harvest time. Say, that smoke is pretty black. And it's coming from the direction of peril. Hey, look out. Fighter coming in from above to make a run on us. And it ain't one of ours either. (laughs) 
Scouting Squadron 6, which took to the sky with the nation at peace, is arriving at Pearl Harbor in the hour of its people's greatest naval tragedy, at the hour of the nation's precipitous plunge into World War II. American youth and the Navy's fledgling, its air arm, have been challenged. What of America's fighting men? Lorelei voices in the air sang a siren song of contempt. Our foe is smug. He has nothing to fight for but his smugness. He will not die for that. We fight for the Son of Heaven, and we would die for him. The soft democracies will now pay for their weakness. They will fall before the strong, the supermen of the new order, and we will... Nuts. the men of the Navy's air arm. How have they met the challenge? We have read their record, the history they have written at Midway, in the Coral Sea, in the Aleutians, the Solomons, over the Atlantic, at Casablanca, on a hundred watery battlefronts. Then are the men of America supermen? Are they fearless? Are they steadfast, unassuming? Do they have tenacity? Do they want to fight? Do they follow instructions? Are they stiff-necked? Do they know for what they fight? Let's look at a few pictures of the men of the Navy's air arm for the answers to those questions. Are they fearless? The aircraft carrier Wasp moves through the waters of the Mediterranean, its flight deck crowded with British Spitfire planes. The American fighter squadron men in the ready room receive instructions from a grim-faced officer. All right, men. All right. You boys are up next. We're close to Malta. Suppose you know what that means. We're getting close to trouble. You're going to fly over for the rest of the way. You can't expect help from our cargo of flighters. Those Spitfires are needed in Malta. And they've orders to light out for Malta, even if it looks like we're going to have an enemy attack. So, about all I can say is... Good luck. All right, you guys. Hop to it. All right. Hey, let's go, boys. Your planes, man your planes. Fighter squadron, just a report that there are 204 German and Italian bombers out looking for us. We better see them before they see us. Fearless? No, indeed. These men are not fearless. They have no belief in a special warrior's Valhalla. They have human fears, but they have courage. Courage forged in the fiercer fires of freedom. Fearless? No, indeed. Scared? Yes. But they did their job and did it well. Answer to question one. Are the men of the Navy's air arm fearless? No. Courageous? Yes. Do they follow instructions? PBYs on routine patrol duty. The huge flying boat picks its way through puffs of irregular clouds. All right, I'll take it for a while, Jane. Okay. Hey, why don't you drop down and see if you can get all the way under those clouds? Yeah, I think I will. Not much chance of spotting anything if we see Hey, it. looks looks to me like something a beam. You sure? Yeah. Yeah, it's a sub about two and a half miles. Get on it, boy. They're getting at us with those guns. Stand by to give me a hand on a pullout. It's going to take all we've got. Pullout? What the devil are you doing? Gonna dive on it. How else can I get down through the cloud? 
very interesting report, Robertson. Yes, sir, I imagine it is. I suppose you know that the PBY wasn't built for dive bombing. Yes, sir, I know that. Uh-huh. 60-degree angle, 220 knots. Well, weren't you afraid you'd rip the wings off and the pull-out? Well, sir, I didn't know, with two of us standing up braced and yanking at the controls. It seems to have worked. How'd you behave? Well, sir, why they call our fighter plane the Corsair go wind, I'll never know. My wings were flapping so we could see the tips bend, <laughs> but they held, sir. <laughs> well, I won't say we encourage that sort of thing, Robertson, but we do like the results you got. Congratulations. <laughs> Does the flyer of the Navy air arm follow instructions? Yes, sometimes, usually, almost always. But he has been drawn from a nation of free men. He's not an automaton. He thinks for himself, thinks for himself, but not of himself. For there are some instructions he has never, will never disregard. Two Navy airmen adrift in a rubber lifeboat. Uh, This is a devil of a feeling, ain't it? You can say that again. Man, I don't know what I'd give to see one of our planes. I suppose they're out looking for us? Well, if the scrap's over, they'll be out looking when we don't turn up. It's an awful big ocean to find a couple of little guys in. Oh, brother, I know now what the temptation of the devil means. Hmm? What are you talking about? Radio. When we were going down, just think. I could have switched on, given our location. We'd have been sitting pretty. Yeah, I know what temptation means. Two men on a big ocean, clinging to the hope that they'll be picked up. Real temptation. Understandable temptation. They could have sent out a radio report of their location, but they had been engaging the enemy. Their radio transmitter would have given the enemy valuable information, would have endangered the safety of their comrades. They had been instructed to observe the radio silence during action, and they have obeyed. And the Pacific is a big, lonesome place. But never once since the start of the war has this instruction been disregarded. Does the flyer of the Navy air arm follow instructions? Sometimes, usually, almost always. But in matter affecting the safety of his fellows, always. Are they stiff-necked? Our totalitarian foe has graded his supermen with severity. His traditional fighting man is a creature apart. His officer may not concede a greater power of any sort in an inferior officer. But what of the men of America's fighting forces? Listen to a couple of marine pilots, Navy-trained flyers. There are Japanese units nearby. A marine lieutenant is flying wing on his division leader, a major. Zero's above, major. Watch out. They'll make a run on us as soon as they spot us. Where? I don't see any zeros. I do. I got 20-20 vision. I should be able to see... Where? You're right. Okay, Major? Yeah. Give me a hand. Yeah. Before I use that hand to lean on, I'd like to shake it. 
What's eating you, Major? I always thought I had eyes, but mine aren't in it with yours. You mean because I spotted those zeros? You were a good ten seconds ahead of me. From now on, fella, I'm flying on your wing. You're leading the division. Are you kidding? I am not. You're the lieutenant and I'm the major. But from now on, I'm glad to fly wing on you. And you can lead the division. I'd much rather be an ex-division leader than an ex-major. Stiff-necked, not by any stretch of the imagination. Our picture of the Navy airmen rounds out. Fearless? No. Courageous? Yes. Follow instructions? Sometimes, usually. Almost always. Stiff-necked? No, indeed. Steadfast. Is he steadfast? There are the brave men who carry out vital and valuable routine services. They also serve who only watch. We speak of the men who fly our blimps. Yes, they are steadfast. Strong in the, in the knowledge that their alertness is preparing future battlefields for victory. We now hear from one who can speak with authority for the men of the lighter than aircraft. Their leader is a recognized pioneer in the field. Ladies and gentlemen, Rear Admiral Charles E. Rosendahl, Chief of Naval Airship Training. Admiral Rosendahl. In coastal waters of the Atlantic, the Pacific, in the Gulf of Mexico, and elsewhere outside our continental limits, considerable numbers of fast surface vessels of various types, many airplanes of different kinds, and a fair number of blimps comprise the coordinated teams of specialists constantly on the alert as the silent service needed to combat the many modern enemy submarines which have created havoc even in our own front yard. A vast amount of unsung, unseen, unspectacular drudgery must be performed by these thousands of specialists to provide continuous flow of the gigantic support required by our frontline forces at sea, on land, and in the air to engage our scattered enemies successfully. But as well as crossing seas, these vast convoys must get in and out of our harbors and along our shipping lanes safely. There's some tendency to give blimps major credit for stemming submarines along our coasts, but we do not so claim. We do feel, however, that blimps are definitely pulling their weight in this war as members of an important service. While equipped and able to attack and destroy submarines, blimps are primarily watchdogs or bird dogs to detect and flush lurking submarines, then generally turning over actual destruction to their more lethal airplane and surface teammates. Our current relatively great blimp expansion started almost from scratch with a half dozen odd and antiquated airships. During World War I, blimps had served the Allies very effectively, but between that and the present war, the United States had designed and, and built only one new naval patrol blimp. In all those 20-some years, no naval blimp had carried or dropped a bomb or fired a gun. Application of anti-submarine equipment to blimps had been almost nil. Hence, the provision and manning of even partially useful blimps for this war would really be somewhat of an accomplishment. As in World War I, blimps in the present war have enjoyed an exclusive record in that not a single one of the thousands of ships under escort by blimps has ever suffered a successful attack by submarine. Because of inherent characteristics, blimps can and do operate in weather conditions prohibitive to other aircraft. Had development not been interrupted, just as we were overcoming their childhood ailments, we might today be making extensive and important use also of very large helium-filled rigid airships as fast, long-range airplane carriers on the high seas. 
Pioneering work done by the airships Los Angeles, Akron, and Macon proved the launching and recovery of airplanes by airships and everyday operating feasibility. For one thing, I am confident such airship carriers of airplanes could today be rendering efficient service comparable to that the baby flat tops are now doing. And who can say such airships might not have been of incalculable value in the Pacific just before fateful December 7, 1941? But whether or not we ever have such gigantic airships, blimps are today carrying on worthily in the light of an airfield. And as we become able to shift the accent from quantity to quality, we may expect blimps to become even more effective. Thank you. Thank you, Admiral Rosendahl. We have seen some of the shadow and some of the substance of this young man who flies on Navy wings, but the overtone is missing. What of the endearing graces? Is he humble in victory? Is he unassuming when his deeds are recognized? Does he covet glory? Let's see. What about you, Keller? Uh, just a moment, sir. I have to check with Beach on that. Uh, Beach, what do you think about This fighter squadron back aboard the carrier is having coffee and the customary informal chat with the air combat information officer after a foray. The data of the mission are being compiled. Well, you can chalk up one zero of the Nagoya type, I guess. Hey, what do you mean, one? I said I saw you knocked down two, but I didn't spend all my time watching you either. Sure, Kelly, you got that Charlie who jumped you from above. The other men seem to think you got another, Keller. <laughs> I'm not saying I did. I think the other Nagoya dived to get away from where it was hot. He was down to about 4,000 feet and still in the dive when I saw him last. Maybe he went all the way down, but <laughs> I couldn't swear. Oh, of course oh, you oh, you know you as much as the fighter pilot would like to have another victory to his credit, he will not force the facts. Because above all else, combat figures must be compiled only from known facts. This is not hat-twisting, storybook modesty. It is utter and complete realism. Realism so searching and unqualified that even official honor sometimes cannot stand up under it. Lieutenant Zigger contributed materially to the destruction of the vessel by pressing home his attack with skill and determination. Early in the spring, he made the original contact with an enemy submarine. The Navy Air Personnel of Dutch Harbor stands at attention as one of its number receives the Naval Cross. And here's the citation read. ...to duty and self-command in the face of danger were in keeping with the highest traditions of the United States Naval Service. <clears throat> Lieutenant, my congratulations. Thank you, sir. You may dismiss the men. Dismiss? Oh, yeah, that's yeah, yeah, let's see it, Ziggy. That's swell, Ziggy. We're proud of you. You're going to get bully and toting all your decorations. Ah, uh, well, you guys lay off. Did any of you ever think why in the devil I'm now wearing a decoration? Sure, you did a good job, Zig. Look, it isn't logical. Day after day, I'm flying over the same water 50 feet above the surface through all this lousy weather we've been having. I could have cracked up any day. Then one day we have decent weather. Everything's perfect. And on a day like that, when I'm flying along, getting a suntan, I happen to lay a pattern around an enemy sub. What the devil am I doing with a medal for that? Modest? Unassuming? Do those words describe the men of the Navy Air Arm? Not quite. Realistic is a better word. These are the men that the totalitarian supermen contemptuously said were soft, faint-hearted, unwilling to fight unless forced. That was to be democracy's Achilles' heel, unwillingness to fight without compulsion. 
Would the Navy airmen fight without being compelled? The United States Navy Task Force lies off Casablanca Harbor, and on an aircraft carrier, a squadron of dive bombers is being brought into line for a takeoff. A gunner is being besieged by a half dozen other gunners. I told you once, no. Oh, give me a chance, Nick. I ain't been out yet. I'll give you a hundred bucks, Cage. Well, if you're going to talk, go to him. I can talk louder than all of you. hundred and fifty, Nick. How about it? No, no. I told you no, didn't I? I mean it. I ain't interested. Two hundred bucks. Two hundred and thirty, Nick. That's all the cash I got. But we could work out something. Look, you guys. I know it's going to be a good, tough fight. And you can't kid me into thinking it isn't going to be. Why, I wouldn't let you talk me out of it for any amount of money. The rear gunner, who has summarily rejected an offer of $230, knows a tough mission is ahead. That's why he refused the offers. Refused to be paid to go? No, indeed. This man has a seat in the flight, and he wouldn't sell it to his clamoring associates for any amount. Have these men the will to fight? Yes. A yes has been written after the question on a hundred battle scenes. Midway. All right, here, I'll give you a hand. I'm not getting out. Just came in to gas up. Well, come on, come on. Get the gas in. I got to get back out there. All right. Hope you got something to land on when you get back. So do I. Almost a day and a half before reports on the Battle of Midway could be correlated at the central point, the men of the Navy air arm landed and took off from the flat top ceaselessly, stopping only for gas and a cup gulp of coffee. All indications were that they had come up against a Japanese force of superior numbers, that defeat was but a matter of time. Their fighting spirit did not abate. In this battle, our Navy air fighters were to prove the axiom that free men fight more fiercely, even in face of defeat, or what seemed to be a defeat. For when reports began to gather at the Central Command, the picture of defeat faded before the tidings of the victory at Midway. Our picture of the Navy airmen of World War II is about completed. We have only to learn for what they fight. Do they fight for narrow, selfish insularism, or for the common cause of the United Nations? This is an answer. At five o'clock in the afternoon, on June 11th, 1943, the radio man at the United States Naval Air Station fingers his dials, seeking the patrol plane frequency more exactly. Outside the windows, low scud and fog patches deaden the sky. The sea offshore is heavy with long swells. The temperature at this latitude is seven degrees below freezing. Now a voice is heard in the patrol plane frequency. PBY-7273 to base. Sighted RAF dinghy one hour ago. Plane crew looks okay. We're going down to pick them up now. We're going down to pick them up now. We're going down to pick them up now. Got the transmitter. Think it's going to go all right, Doug? That's a cinch. May have been an hour wasted studying the problem. It's better to be safe. It's pretty heavy weather to make a water landing without giving it a lot of thought. Yeah, poor devils down there. Man, I'll bet they're cold. We're going to take a long run in. Here goes. The sea airman's run along the top of a long, broad master swell is perfectly calculated. Midway in the landing rung, a cross wave hooks a wingtip, swings the big craft, and flings it into an adjoining wave. Doug, look out!
split, green water rushed in, and in 15 minutes, PBY 7273 sank into the dark waters as the crew of nine watched from two rubber life rafts. The men in the RAF dinghy paddled over, but they soon were separated from the rubber boats by heavy seas and darkness. All hands were constantly drenched with icy spray. On the first evening, two men died of exposure. On the second day, three more followed. On the third day, the survivors saw flares, and off in the fog thought they heard a plane take off. They talked about it quite a lot. That was the night the Royal Air Force men were picked up. On the fourth day, two more men died. On the sixth, another. And on the seventh, the one survivor was saved. These men did not for one moment question their responsibility nor try to deny the bonds of brotherhood that unite your nation and ours in this common cause. At a memorial service held for the crew of PBY 7273, a few days later at the U.S. Naval Air Station, United States Navy airmen were not surprised to see an RAF chaplain assisting their own, to find the church and the yard outside filled with silent Royal Air Force pilots and mechanics. Our blinking newspapers will think of a better way to say it, Yank, but they can't mean it any more than we do. We'd a thousand times have rather it been one of us. And as the men of two nations united in a common cause shake hands, we have the final victory of our United States Navy flyer in World War II, believers in the universal right, in the stake of each in the future of humanity, in the brotherhood of man. Ensign William R. Evans, Jr., of Torpedo Squadron 8, wrote a letter to a friend that speaks the thoughts of our men who fight on Navy wings. His letter was written a few days before he was reported missing in the Battle of Midway in June of 1942. If anything good or great has been born of this war, it should not be valued in the pages that historians will attempt to write, but rather in the youth of our country who were never trained for war and who almost never believed in war, but who have, from some hidden source, brought forth a gallantry which is homespun. It's so real. I say these things to you because I know you liked and understood, boys, because I want you to know that they haven't let you down. Out there, between the spaceless sea and sky, American youth has found itself and given of itself so that a home spark may catch, burst into flames, burn high. If our country takes these sacrifices with indifference, it will be the cruelest ingratitude the world has ever known. Remembering the countless happy hours I spent with all of you has been a constant source of contentment. My luck can't last much longer, but the flame goes on, and only that is important.
As a fitting close to the Battle Station series, we present Vice Admiral John S. McCain, Deputy Chief of Naval Operations for Air, who speaks to you from Washington. Less than two months after the war began, carrier-based planes struck viciously at the Marshall and Gilbert Islands. The destruction they left behind them was repeated at enemy hell wake and Marcus Islands. Action at Salamara and Ley knocked out Jap cruisers, destroyers, transports, and cargo ships. This was done again at Tulagi. Then followed the historic battles at the Carl Sea, Midway, and Guadalcanal. And as the Allied drive against the Axis strengthened, Navy planes saw gallant action in North Africa and the Aleutians. Navy and Army flyers helped beat off the aerial counterattacks by which the enemy tried to block the start of present Pacific offensive, the occupation of Brandova. During the first nine days of this drive to capture Munder, nearly 200 Jap planes were destroyed. A five-to-one ratio of planes destroyed in the Pacific is not uncommon. Our pilots are keen, competent, and brave. Their equipment and their crews are equally top flight. As naval aviation reaches its 30th anniversary, huge and powerful task forces will seek the enemy to destroy him. The best planes, the best ships, and the best men are working together to that end. Such, team, such teamwork points only one way. Unconditional surrender of the enemy after we have battered their strength to a pulp. Thank you, Admiral McCain. This has been the final in a series of four programs prepared by the Special Events Department of NBC in cooperation with the United States Navy. The script was written by Charles Gussman. The music composed, scored, and directed by Leo Kempinski. The production was directed by Joseph Mansfield. Jack Costello speaking. Battle stations came to you from Washington and New York. This is the National Broadcasting Company. That will do it for today. If you uh, have a comment, email me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. I welcome your story or that of loved ones who served during World War II. Ken Curlin provides our opening theme music, KenCurlin.com. I am your host, Adam Graham. This uh, series is provided as a service of the great detectives of old-time radio, greatdetectives.net.